This is the Flatlining Podcast. A rally to preserve services at Franciscan Health Hammond today. This afternoon, the hospital will reduce services later this year. It's a hospital that has a history in Hammond going back more than 100 years. On Monday, a plan was approved by the Franciscan Alliance Corporate Board to transfer many of the services to other hospitals. In this report, we found that Medicare Advantage plans sometimes denied or delayed patients' access to care, even though the requests for services were medically necessary and met Medicare coverage rules. So in other words, the patients likely would have received approval if they had been enrolled in traditional Medicare rather than in Medicare Advantage. These denials can cause delays or prevent patients from accessing needed health care. And that can be particularly harmful for patients who are critically ill and for whom any delay in care can cause negative health consequences. Um, let's talk about one more company, uh, squeeze one more in before yep. the bell. Anthem, the big insurance company, which is rebranding itself, by the way, as Elevance. Of course it is. Ele- Elevance, Elevance. Yeah. Elephants, Elevance, Elevance. It's up two and a half percent after earnings beat estimates $8.25 a share, and the company raised its forecast for the full year 2022. Medical loss ratio, that's the important number mm-hmm. for insurance companies. How much of their premiums do they um, end up paying out? 86.1%. Um, and the company had already guided that that number was going to be better than expected. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with me, as he has been previously and hopefully will be in perpetuity, is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies, Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you doing this week? I'm doing good today. I hope you are as well. I am, and I'm kind of excited for what we're doing today because we're going to be spending some time uh, bouncing around a little bit, uh, more so than what we normally do, and talking about some of the things going on in the healthcare world that are somewhat related to what we've done the past few weeks. Uh, But there are also news headlines that uh, either you may have missed or in at least one case was not covered in a lot of mainstream outlets. Uh, But I hope we're going to have a good time talking about them and get some good information out there. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Are you ready to get started? Absolutely. All right. So the first one I want to share popped up this morning or earlier this week, rather, this morning on the day we're recording it from Kaiser Health News. And it has to do with uh, the Franciscan uh, hospital system in the Chicagoland area. And they are announced that they are going to be demolishing one of their older hospitals in Hammond, Indiana. Uh, It has uh, over 200 uh, hospital beds. I I believe right now, but they're going to be demolishing it, leaving eight beds and an emergency department and outpatient services. And instead that they want people to go to their nearby hospitals that are newer uh, and not so much go to this one for a number of different reasons. And I guess from a quality and access standpoint, I'm curious what your initial reaction to that is. Well, I think this, you know, this really brings up a bigger topic that we talked about before about that balancing act of quality, access and cost. Um, operating full-service hospitals in small rural communities is incredibly inefficient, incredibly costly. Now, one could argue that, but it increases access and quality. So it's that sort of balancing area. Um, We're going to be facing this a lot with, especially as things become more and more expensive. I mean, 
Hospitals now, to keep up with the latest equipment, have to have the latest MRI machine, the latest ORs, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That's incredibly expensive. And if you're not able to fully utilize their capacity, it becomes you know difficult to do. So how do you balance between a community's need to have some level of resource, their desire to have all the resources available in their community, nobody wants to drive, and the cost effectiveness or efficiency of running a facility? We've also seen this happen in the other way, where we've seen sort of ridiculous overbuilds, if you will, sometimes for what appears to be you know, hospital ego. Um, Kalamazoo, Michigan, the area where, you know, where I grew up, mm-hmm. um, had a famous story years ago about its, small, its two small hospitals, both of whom had an air ambulance helicopter service and a pad on their roof. Now, it's not a city that's big enough to be able to support two air ambulance helicopters, right, but right. One, one hospital got one, the other CEO wanted one. So that's the other end of the spectrum. And it's a difficult balancing act. And it's it is a difficult balancing act, and then it's also difficult to look at you know whether or not a nonprofit chain like Franciscan Alliance needs to continue operating uh, some of these hospitals, especially in some of these Rust Belt areas where people have moved away. Uh, Kaiser Health News reports that they, according to Medicare Medicare.gov, they are the lowest, they're the one of the worst rated hospitals in the county. That particular one. And it only rates one out of five stars on, on Medicare.gov. And that being said, that there are other hospitals nearby rank much higher than that. Um, so I would look at this as more of a, you know, of course, as a cost-cutting measure, but it's a cost-cutting measure in it that it's also a improving, it's also improving quality in the way of saying, we're not going to be running this institution anymore that doesn't work. We want you to go to these other ones that are nearby. Right. A- absolutely. And that's, again, it gets in a whole balance of, access, quality, cost, um, and how do we do that sort of right, perfect balance. One interesting thing that I wanted to pick your brain about, only because I brought it up last week, is that the Franciscan Alliance is a nonprofit organization, and there seems to be a little bit of a slant in this particular article of uh, criticizing them for making a cost-cutting decision. And you're on the board for a nonprofit. Uh, I've worked for nonprofits. We've talked about how uh, technically, Blue Cross Blue Shield is nonprofit. What would your response be to someone who would criticize this sort of decision by saying they shouldn't be evaluating cost-cutting measures in this way because they're a nonprofit? Yeah, I, I find it sort of interesting, almost humor, humorous from one two perspectives. First of all, um, nonprofit doesn't mean that you've got a money press in your basement and can just print money and you should always operate at a loss. Right. You can't. I mean, you always have to make sure that you're able to pay your bills, et cetera. So it's not like you could criticize them and say, well, of course they should keep losing money on this hospital. Um, you eventually do that and you're going to be an ex-nonprofit. Um, the other thing that I find interesting in this, and it's human nature, is the same people that will criticize a nonprofit hospital system for closing a small, inefficient poor quality facility in a community that is shrinking will on the other end of that spectrum criticize a for-profit hospital for investing money in an area that already has hospitals to just make more more profit right you know you sort of can't have both sides of that argument and i would argue that you know yes you should wonder if they had closed it purely from a money perspective and the community really needed it that's one thing but the community obviously doesn't need it. They have other options, and this wasn't producing the level of quality. So um, some people will look at 
you know, sort of will have a preconceived argument in their head and they'll look for examples to support it. And one last point that I, that I found interesting in here is that they had a retired nurse from this hospital interviewed, and she mentioned that the other nearby hospitals are, it's true that they're only minutes away, and, but she also correctly points out that in some cases, minutes make a difference. Mm-hmm. But according to their survey, they found that this hospital combined with one of their other nearby hospitals only had a 15% market share compared to the 45% market share of their uh, hospitals in Michigan City and Crown Point, Indiana, and that people have already been avoiding this hospital anyway as by the fact that they only have 50 or 60 beds filled on an average day out of a 200-plus bed hospital. Yeah, and, and that probably is um, a perfect example of the community already realizing that it wasn't producing the kind of quality that they were looking for, and they were shopping with their feet. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, why not, you know, end it, close it, take those resources, which are significant, and devote them to other facilities who are doing the job that needs to be done. Well, that's going to wrap up our first article. That's from Kaiser Health News about a, a, a nonprofit hospital in Hammond, Indiana. And we'll be sure to make sure that all the links are in the show notes for this program, and you can find them at flatlining.net. And of course, we want to hear from you too, so be sure to tweet myself or Ron. Uh, about uh, any of the topics you hear on this, today's program or put a comment on uh, on this post at flatlining.net. The next one I want to talk about comes from Wendell Potter, uh, former insurance executive who now kind of writes uh, from the outside looking in. And he published uh, just a few days ago a part of Anthem's uh, uh, incomes for the first three months of 2022. And they took in about $38 billion so far this year. Uh, but as he points out, only 27% of that came from private-paying individuals, employees. Uh, the majority of the rest coming from uh, subsidies from the federal government and from uh, taxpayer finance, Medicare, and Medicaid programs. So I guess the first thing I want to talk about is, one, does, as we talked about healthcare costs last week in our episode on big insurance, and we have in the past about when we talked about the healthcare quality equation, how much does this affect healthcare costs when a company like Anthem is majority funded by Medicare and Medicaid programs? Well, I think you need to look at this in, in a sort of a different perspective than Wendell does. And, and mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of Wendell's. I know him. I worked with him at Cigna. Um, first of all, you got to understand the federal government is the largest purchaser of healthcare in the world. Okay. Our federal government is. Okay. Right. So, of course, they're going to be purchasing health care from companies like Anthem and others where they're saying, we're going to give you the money and you do this work. We're buying those services from you. Much like the federal government purchases massive amounts of product from Lockheed Martin. Okay, mm-hmm. 70% of Lockheed Martin's revenue comes from the government. They're a government contractor. 30% of Boeing's revenue comes from the government because the government buys planes from them. So how much of that revenue that comes from the government to me is not the question. The question is, are they getting a good deal for it? Are they getting the value of the product? Um, Would it be more expensive for them to try to do themselves or is purchasing it from Anthem and United and others a better deal than trying to buy it themselves? So that's a question. And I don't know the answer to that question. I'm just saying that just about, you know, just looking at how much money Anthem takes in from the government to me Mm -hmm. is not the question. The question is, well, are they getting value for it, or should they be the, the you know the per, the supplier themselves? There have been a lot of studies that have shown that potentially, 
the government could save a lot of money from the U.S. postal system if they just farmed it out to, you know, FedEx and, mm-hmm. and UPS and those others that they're more efficient operation. So that would then beg the question: Should the government be the supplier if they're not if they're not able to do it efficiently? And that's an open question. To me, that's the question here about, you know, um, is the thirty-eight billion dollars or is the twenty-seven percent um, from private pay and the seventy-three from the government? Are those off kilter somehow? It's what are we getting for it? And I think you're right. So, and I think you also have to make the assumption in general that med- that the government should be involved in medic in Medicare or healthcare at all. And if we're making that assumption, do right. you think, in your estimation, that they do get value by purchasing or contracting out to the anthems and signas and and etnas of the world to run Medicare Advantage and Medicaid programs? Um. I think, and from what I've seen from looking into sort of how those things work and how they purchase it, that it's like any other government purchasing contracts. There are some that are good and some that are bad. Mm-hmm. There are some of the way the government purchases health care, either as an employer through the Federal Employees Benefits Plan or by buying services you know, from Anthem or others for Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera, that I think are very good and, and much more efficient than doing them themselves. And like any contract, are there things in there that I think are a little wasteful and that, you know, maybe the uh, the insurer is taking advantage of the government? Sure, absolutely. And I think it should be reviewed. But I don't think that there you can conclusively say, boy, the government buying health care from Anthem is a horrible thing and we waste a ton of money. There aren't any data or studies that show that. So I want to look at one other stat that he has in here, and uh, that's that this is a significant increase from where Anthem was 10 years ago. Uh, and he points out that in 2012, 56%, the majority of Anthem's revenues came from private paying customers. What does that say about uh, either the United States or the federal government that now they're now most they've transitioned away from the majority of their income being from private individuals to the federal government? Well, I think it says a couple of things. First of all, it, it reiterates how much the federal budget is hinging on healthcare and healthcare cost. It is a mm-hmm. massive amount of spend. Um, you know, fixing a federal budget problem doesn't happen without going after healthcare cost. It's just too big. That's one thing it points out. The other thing it points out is we've had some changes over the last couple of decades that have driven this. One is the federal government getting more and more into Medicare plans where rather than the government being the payer and just what we used to think of as the standard Medicare to these now Medicare takeover or Medicare Advantage plans. Um, So there's an increase in that revenue to an anthem and there's an offsetting decrease in government expense. You know, the government used to process those claims. Now they pay anthem to process them and United, et cetera. Um, Same thing with managed Medicaid. You know, as states go to managed Medicaid, that transfers... um, expense away from the federal government in or the state in actually processing those claims mm-hmm. to the, the you know the roles of the of the insurance companies you know was that a good transfer did we you know did we save a quarter and spend a dollar or vice versa that, that needs to be looked at more carefully the other thing that's part of this is and, and he's carefully talks about federal subsidies remember that when the Affordable Care Act was done the federal government subsidizes quite a bit of that insurance cost. That's included in this money. And Anthem is one of the big plans for the Affordable Care Act, Mm -hmm. um, the exchange plans. 
So it's a combination of a lot of things. It wasn't that Anthem or United or anybody else suddenly said, you know, we want to be a government contractor and have most of our money come from the government. It's who's buying now. You know, it's who's taking over the buying through that transfer subsidy, managed Medicaid, more managed Medicare, and aging population. All those factors lead to it. They're just so selling guess, to who's buying their product. So I guess then that that, diff, that has Anthem then and the others differ then from some of these private equity groups that were formed to get involved in exchange plans. Yeah, I mean, Anthem was already there. They just now have a new purchaser who's buying more of their product, if you will, and they're selling to it, which they mm -hmm. should. But these other entities that started up to just be exchange plans, that's their whole business model is to just do that work or to just be a managed Medicaid plan. I want to stay with uh, Medicare Advantage for just a few more moments. Well, probably a little bit longer, given the what I think is the weightiness of this story. Uh, and I was surprised to see that it didn't pop up in many other places other than U.S. news and a few uh, newspapers of record across the U.S. And that is that the Inspector General uh, last week put out a report, uh, the Inspector General Office for the U.S. Uh, Department of Health and Human Services, saying that Medicare needs to improve the oversight of Medicare Advantage plans because many of them denied coverage for eligible and necessary care. And some of the uh, numbers are, to me, seemed impressive, and, and you can either correct me or, or it, affirm that. And they reviewed uh, a number of plans from 2019, and it revealed that about uh, an estimated 85,000 requests for prior authorization were improperly denied, and that Medicare Advantage plans refused to pay about 18% of legitimate claims. What do you make of hearing that on first glance? Is that a lie? Is that a problem? Or is it a, a rounding error? Um, it, it's a big problem. And it's a big problem um, because if it's you and it's a required or necessary service, you're one of one. Mm -hmm. And you can't get it. Um, and delays in care or uh, failing to provide certain services can have you know life and death impacts. Um, it also brings up an issue that is prevalent throughout our system. Um, there is no uniform um, coverage guideline, okay? And literally, the um, services that you get can depend on who your insurance company is, whether it's Medicare mm -hmm. or non-Medicare. And those services could then change the way your, your health outcomes go. And so this presents a, you know, a big problem. Now, I will tell you that the payers would argue that what they're denying is not necessary care. They would argue that these are MRIs that really aren't medically necessary. And the problem is that things are a little bit gray and squishy, and so either side can make that argument. And in the middle of that is stuck a patient where there should be better, um, in my opinion, uniform coverage guidelines. It shouldn't matter on who you're, whether you're Blue Cross or United or Retina or Cigna or, or whoever, the care you get should be based on what you need and science and studies, et cetera. And if it's a gray area, my opinion, there should be some centralized place where it can go for the, you know, for the conclusion. In other mm -hmm. words, if the doctor says, I think this MRI is necessary and the payer says, I don't think so, there should be some external, very quick clinical review board that they could send it to where they would look at it and say, based on the most current science, we say yes or we say no, and that's it. Um, 
So I think it's a huge problem. I think it's terrible that's happening to Medicare, but it happens throughout the the, um, con the continuum, whether it's you know small employer, large employer, you name it. Uh, and it frustrates the heck out of doctors, you know, because they'll say, well, patient one comes in and I order this test and get it. And patient mm -hmm. two comes in with the exact same presentation. And I order the test. And I don't get it. They've just got a different insurance carrier. Why should that be? Why should I be providing different levels of care? And and that was interesting. You mentioned MRIs. MRIs and CT scans ended mm -hmm. up being the most frequently uh, denied. Uh, and in fact, they're reporting that in one case, an Advantage plan refused to approve a follow-up MRI to determine whether a lesion was malignant after it was identified through an earlier CT scan because the lesion was too small. Apparently, that uh, plan did reverse its decision later on. Uh, it also points out that another patient had to wait five weeks before getting authorization to get a CT scan to assess her endometrial cancer to determine a course of treatment. Um, it, it seems like the inspector general did point out that they agree that this is problematic. Um, I'm not sure if I necessarily liked their uh, prescriptions to fix the problem, though, because they simply said you need to put out more guidelines and do better at auditing. Uh, that seems kind of a, of course, I don't know what the inspector general could do, but that seems kind of like a weak um, proposition for that sort of thing. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I didn't like the, the conclusion. And like you say, well, what could the IG do? I mean, there's a question about that. But at least they shed some light on the, the problem. And I agree. It's amazing that this didn't, you know, get better coverage in the media because, you know, one would hope that withholding and, and maybe not all 85,000 were truly medically necessary, but some portion of them had to be. Right. And, and if that's the case, and let's just say, well, let's say it's half and half. Okay, we're at over 40,000 incidents where some elderly person in our society was refused care that they needed. Boy, that doesn't feel good, you know, mm -hmm. when you put it in those terms. I do also want to point out, just for the sake of fairness, that uh, a 2018 report did point out that uh, private plans reversed about three quarters of their denials uh, on, on, on appeal. So, and this, I believe, did not look at uh, how many reversed this particular uh, report, uh, but that the, apparently some of them do get reversed. Uh, it also was, I, I was impressed with the fact that it was actually seemed to be scientifically done. They took a sample, um, a representative sample from a particular week of June of 2019. So it's prior to COVID-19. Uh, I'd be interested to see how that uh, changed things, though. Yeah, and, and like I said, the IG office usually does a pretty good job at that stuff, and it was pretty tried to be pretty unbiased and pretty factual and claim-based, which is good. And, and yeah, a lot of them do get overturned, but now at least there's a delay happening. Those those appeals don't happen in 20 minutes. That means that somebody sat there, and, and maybe that delay didn't have real clinical implications, but... Mm -hmm. We've all been in that situation where the doctor says, hey, I, you know, I'm worried about something or we know somebody's been in that situation. I'm going to order an MRI. And if you come back, well, it got denied. It's going to take me a couple of weeks to get this approved. That's two weeks of anxiety right. that wasn't necessary. Not to mention the resources of the denial, then the submitting for the approval, then the review and the approval. That's all wasted resources. Well, we can definitely see how this affects uh, quality outcomes and, and how it affects access to health care. Does it affect cost? Um, it, it does affect cost in that there's all of that unnecessary back and forth of shuffling paperwork to say mm -hmm. yes, no. 
Um, now, I, I'm not saying we should go to a, anything a doctor ever wants they should get because there are tons of examples of doctors ordering stuff that aren't necessary and don't meet clinical criteria. Um, and it definitely, if the condition or situation got worse, let's say that while they were waiting for this diagnostic test, the patient had an acerbation and ended up in the ER, okay, that may be unnecessary cost. So it, it absolutely increased cost. Um, we just got to figure out a better way to apply good clinical rationale in a more uniform way, quickly and efficiently. All right, we're going to transition away from Medicare Advantage for now. And again, all these these articles will be available in uh, the show notes for today's program and at flatlining.net. The next thing I want to talk about is more of a... um, I don't want to say topical story, but sort of topical, more more health-related, and that's that the FDA is looking to um, find a plan to start banning uh, menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars. And I'm curious what your initial reaction is to that. Yeah, this this one gets touchy because on one hand, the economist in me and the, the individual who's worked in healthcare for 35 years in me says, man, and it's easy for me, I don't smoke, I've never smoked, mm-hmm. to say if we could get rid of cigarettes, think of how much cost we drive. Think of what damage they do. I mean, um, there are only a couple of vasal constrictors out there. Okay, These are things that make your, va- your vessels tighten up, which is a horrible thing from a heart attack perspective. There's cigarettes and cocaine. Okay, mm-hmm. so, I mean, most everything else is a vasodilator. Um, so part of me thinks, man, yes, yes, get rid of cigarettes. If they, you know, let's make them taste crappy. Maybe people will stop doing it. And then there's another side of me that says, wait a minute. We live in a free society. And sometimes the side effects of a free society is people make bad choices, but they have the right to do it. And if you start down that slippery slope, Mm-hmm. of banning menthol and cigarettes and flavored cigars. Well, what about the you know supersized Big Mac meal at McDonald's? I could argue that that's not good for you either. And, right. And what about the Big Gulp in New York City? Oh, wait a minute, they already did that. Um, what about, you know I mean? <laughs> it, it's, a, it, it's like censorship. It's like, you know, uh, anything else. Once you start down that slippery slope, where does it stop? And more importantly, who decides? Who becomes the arbiter of people's bad choices and telling us how to live? So, you know, I, I look at this and say, I don't smoke. I don't care whether they have menthol and cigarettes or flavor. But then there's a bigger part of me that goes, man, I don't like the trend of this. Um, right. I don't like what it does, even though I think cigarettes are a horrible thing and we'd be better off without them. There are a lot of horrible things that, you know, that we have because we have freedoms to have them. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, I, I almost wonder if we're not heading down a, um, a, a new, I don't want to say policy change, but a new um, public perception of, of cigarettes and smoking. I know vaping products are really popular, and I, I understand that they're very popular among high school students, unfortunately, right now. But um, with cigarettes, I was surprised when uh, just a few years ago that they raised the smoking age to 21. Uh, of course, that came through Congress and not through the FDA. But I'm wondering if there isn't a perception change on smoking in general where this might be more acceptable than it might have been before. Yeah, I think that's been a big concern of a lot of people. When vaping came, would that then slide back into acceptability of cigarettes? Um, 
And, you know, there's some backlash around, you know, heck, anything the government wants me to do, I don't want to do by very nature. And so, right. and that, and that's a big concern because cigarettes cause a huge amount of cost in our system and an, a massive amount of healthcare damage. Um, and that may be even more the reason not to try to do little stuff like banning menthol. Um, are you going to create even more of a desire to do it because the government doesn't want me doing it? Therefore, mm-hmm. it must be okay for me, kind of, uh, you know, that I think... At the end of the day, when I factor in the freedom part versus what cigarettes are bad and menthol, and I, part of me just goes, you know what? There are bigger hills to fight, you know, bigger hills to climb, bigger battles to fight. Let, leave this one alone. Right. And I wonder too, it, just as a, as I'm thinking through this, uh, if if we're looking at this from a you know a public health perspective, where we can see we know what cigarettes do to a human body, we know how it affects and hurts the human body, and we know how it puts a strain on our healthcare system. We know how it makes huge costs in our healthcare system. Can this fall then into the category of public health like COVID has? Uh, you know, theoretically could. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I understand how some people might look at that and be concerned that, oh, this is a slippery slope to just government regulation yeah. on everything. I, I understand that. I'm just wondering if, if COVID didn't open the door uh, to, to more regulation on, on things like this. Well, and I think it did. You know, I think it, it, it for some people, I think it either clearly did or clearly could. Um, you know, it's, it's, there are a lot of people, and I think there's some, some very logic behind this of, you know, give them an inch, take a mile kind of thing. Well, now that they've been successful in telling us we all have to stay inside and wear masks and get vaccinated, and, you know, um, the next thing they're going to do is they, we all can't have, you know, um, colas or smoke cigarettes mm-hmm. or you know eat big macs and and i think there's some reason to be concerned about that um can i think the the vast majority of the people in public health and federal public health truly in their heart of hearts are trying to do what they think is right and you know the what they think will protect people and help people live healthier lives i don't think there's any for the vast majority of those people, malice there. But what you think is right may be at odds with what somebody else feels is their right to be a free citizen. And that we right. have to be careful about that mm-hmm. um, because that's who we are, you know, with the goods and bads that come with it. And, and I've been interested to, to look at, cause I lived in the UK for a little while and in the UK, I think I encountered more smokers there than I did in my time growing up in North Carolina which is saying something, given that North Carolina was the tobacco capital of the world at one point. And I'm wondering, you know, how how they have changed what they do, either through education or through regulation, um, or how it affects their healthcare system, their, the NHS, or pretty much anywhere in Europe. They, they smoke a lot more than we do here at the NES. And how they've done that, uh, where they're much more regulation-friendly and people are generally much more regulation-supportive than they are here in the United States. And I don't know if you know the answer to that or not, but it's just something I've wondered. I I don't. And I I also think that, you know, what works in Europe or other countries, you know, might not work here. Right. I'm I'm a firm believer, and we've seen this work a fair amount. We'll never, it'll never work completely. But, you know, if, if there are, habits or activities that you want to curtail make them more expensive you know you still have the freedom but if you're going to and there's some logic behind that i mean if somebody's an active smoker there's some logic behind you saying well then you should pay a lot more for your health insurance you know you you are Mm -hmm. you know you are creating at-risk behavior 
that is going to have dollars down the road, why should a non-smoker pay as much as a smoker? And and you could do it either by having a penalty for the smoker or a reduction for the non-smoker. Um, there are a lot of things you could do it that way. And, and that's why, you know, cigarettes get taxed like they do and, you know, as, to, as they call the sin tax or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it helps some, and but for some people in a free society, it's not going to help at all. They're still going to do it. And I do know in, in places like Japan, they did start having people clocking out when they went out on a smoke break because right. they were, right. you know, it, why, why does that person get to have a free break time when I don't? Right. Exactly. So. All right, so then I think that's going to kind of wrap up the main headline thing. And the next thing I want to talk about is more of an opinion piece. And I saw this today, and I thought this is this is too good to not talk about. <laughs> yes. Um, and the well, I'm not sure who's writing this. Uh, they don't give any information on who's writing this. Um, his name is his a pseudonym named Periclesis, who they are who they're saying is an American physician. I'm sorry, they is uh, Real Clear Books and Culture who I don't normally read, but it was published on, on Real Clear Health this morning, which is how I came across it. Uh, Pericles, Peri, Paracelsus excuse me, is an American physician and the author of the newly released book, Do No Harm. Um, so that being said, that we're looking at a synonymously written uh, article uh, for Real Clear Books and Culture, which generally is more conservative. The article is called Question Your Doctor. And... The majority of the article is going through a few points that he has uh, about having independence from the medical establishment and questions that you need to be thinking about when you look at your doctor and the kind of health care and advisement that they're giving you. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up was, one, the absurdity, because it's, it's mostly about COVID, quite frankly. But the other reason I wanted to bring it up is, is part of our job at Fulcrum is we are physician and provider advocates. And I think one of the things that we can be advocates for, especially on this podcast and at flatlining.net, is looking at um, evaluating some of these sorts of things that come up on the internet where it's, you kind of have the question everything and you are your own expert sort of thing. So uh, I'm wondering if we can go through point by point with, with what he's saying, if you'd be interested in that. Oh, yeah, I'd love to, because I read the article, and I will tell you that, um, again, with somebody who works with physicians every day, it really sort of almost made my blood boil a little bit. One, because there were conclusions that drawn that I think that are just absolutely wrong. Um, and two, it, it painted a very slanted picture. So I'd love to sort of go through point by point, and I'll point out what I mean by, come on now. This is yeah. not the reality of the situation. Now, his main thesis seems to be that, that we should be optimizing our own health outcomes via exercise, proper nutrition, and reading up on, quote, topics salient to ourselves and to our families. It's a little bit nebulous, but that's okay. Um, daunting as it can be to question a doctor imbued with the supposed authority of a white coat and a stethoscope. We must remember that each of us is our own best advocate. And he says, based on my personal and professional experience, here are a handful of litmus test questions to quickly gauge whether your doctor is independent and open to evidence and evolving data or quote, part of the rotting self-serving medical establishment. So with that characterization in mind of how he views modern medicine, uh, I think we should continue. So the first one, uh, does the doctor practice what he or she preaches? And he says, this one's easy and does not have to be asked out loud. Does the doctor sitting before you have a gut hanging halfway to the door? 
Your doctor doesn't have to be an athlete, but he or she needs to be healthy. It's frankly shocking that many doctors cannot button up their white coats because of their bulging waistline. If you want to probe further, you might ask what the doctor recommends by way of exercise and nutrition. If that draws a perfunctory reply or something along the lines of, well, I personally get all the exercise I need seeing patients all day, nod politely and move on to someone else. What do you think about that? Uh, you know, I think that is a incredibly inappropriate um, bar to put on, <laughs> and we don't do yeah. with any other profession, you know. Um, the, whether a doctor practices what they preach or not, it, to me, is completely irrelevant. Do they understand the medicine, the field that they're in, the clinical science behind it? You know, I mean, the flip side is, you know, there can be doctors who are incredibly fit and not very good at their craft. I mean, the two, I don't see how the two are related. Now, I, I've often sort of wondered, boy, I, you know, given what a doctor knows, how come they smoke? And I know doctors that smoke. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I've had, I've asked doctors personally, you know, you, you're a doctor. He goes, I know, I, I know it's horrible and I'm addicted and I know what I'm doing is wrong. Okay. You know, so I just think that one was sort of hilarious as a, as a litmus test of, you know, if I'm going to judge my doctor's fitness as their ability to be a good dietitian or a clinician, that's a pretty bad bar to try to judge somebody on. Well, it even kind of contradicts the first thing he said in his introduction, that if we're each our own best advocate, yeah. well, you know, what's good for you might not be good for me, and me weighing, you know, 400 pounds and being a doctor might be perfectly fine. Right. Yeah, I, it just, it, it, that one bothers me. All right, his second point is, what is the doctor's opinion on medical society guidelines? He says medical societies usually update guidelines every five years or so. For example, the guideline for what was considered high cholesterol has been revised downward over the years, and as a result, more people have been diagnosed with high cholesterol and taking statins. An honest and independent doctor will acknowledge the American Heart Association receives millions of dollars from Big Pharma, and therefore their guidelines and so-called cardiovascular risk calculator are literally programmed to put everyone on a statin. Yet the incidence of heart disease continues to skyrocket. Ask your doctor for their opinion on why this and other guidelines have changed, and if following those changes made patients healthier. What do you think? Yeah, so uh, there's a couple of things here, and, and this is going to be a theme through several of these. First of mm -hmm. all, I believe that the vast majority of doctors, and th this guy apparently who wrote this is a doctor, so he, he may fall mm -hmm. under this vast majority, try to follow the science and try to follow objective clinical data and studies. That's what medicine is built on, okay? And the science learns and changes, okay? Right. Yes, what has been deemed to be high cholesterol, we've learned a lot over the years as more and more studies have happened. And we've learned which drugs will help and which won't. What we consider high cholesterol has changed. There's been changes about recommendations about diet. All of that happens, just like every other field of medicine, okay? And the doctors who stay up with those um, studies, et cetera, also follows changes. One of the changes that happened is we've now learned that, um, first of all, there's no data that shows that taking statins long-term has any negative side effects. And it mm -hmm. definitely has massive positive side effects. Right. There's a strong correlation between lower levels of cholesterol and lower cardiac risk. The reason why cardiac disease has continued to skyrocket is we've gotten more and more unhealthy. And so they're, you know, it's like trying to hold back the tide with a scoop shovel. Mm -hmm. We've also, there are new studies out there that say that, you know, taking statins to the point where we start to get very low levels of cholesterol, that the heart looks like it actually heals itself and it can have some 
you know, if you have some level of calcium or blockages, that can actually start to go away. But these are all learning things, and I want my doctor to continue to learn. I don't want him to pull out his guidelines from 1955 and say, here's how I'm going to treat you, Ron. I want him to say, you know what? I saw a new study that was really great that tells me X. And sometimes that means that what we've been doing for a while goes away. A perfect example is um, there are drugs that were approved and widely used based on the information they had in the past. Mm -hmm. Lithium. Yeah. for manic depressives, okay? If lithium were a new drug today and put through the FDA guidelines, it would never be approved because we've learned that it has a number of harmful side effects to other parts of the body, the liver, et cetera. Well, does that mean because it was okay back then that we should continue to use it and not change the way we're doing things based on new information? No, we should be learning and changing. Any doctor who isn't doing that is, you know, in my opinion, shouldn't be practicing anymore. And it seems to this this particular point seems to reek too of this of this nonsense idea that uh, you know your doctor is making money off of the the prescriptions he's prescribing you because somehow he's in the pocket of big pharma, and you, we've heard this with the COVID vaccines as well that everyone's approving them because the, everyone's in the pocket of big pharma and that's just not true, is it? No, and, and, and or that that the American Academy of Cardiology is in the pocket of big right. pharma or that, I mean. You know, come on, show me anything, anything that's credible, real data that shows that they're making decisions based on what big pharma is trying to get them to do instead of based on what's right for their profession and for the patients that they care for. That's insulting and it's not true and it's not supported by data or fact. All right. His third point, does the doctor use a one size fits all approach? And he says individual patients have different forms of disease and react differently to medications. For example, many patients with an autoimmune thyroid disease who need thyroid replacement medication swear that natural dissected th desiccated thyroid hormone works much better than a synthetic thyroid hormone. A good doctor will listen to a patient who knows his own body, and a bad doctor will recite the medical establishment's line that the synthetic thyroid hormone works best for everyone. How do you answer that? So a couple things. First of all, there isn't a single thing that can happen to a patient without the patient's approval or agreement. Mm -hmm. Okay, Doctors aren't tying people down and forcing pills down their throat. Right. Okay, The patient can always say, I don't want that or I'm not going to take it. They can always advocate for what they do want. But what I loved in this line is many patients will swear, okay, so these patients, and they may believe, fully believe, that something is better than, but that's not scientific evidence, okay? There are patients in COVID who swore that animal ivermectin made them better, mm -hmm. and it did not. That's wrong. I was just thinking okay? that, yeah. There are patients who believe that, you know, certain things will help them, and, you know, that, boy, if I just do this on a day when it rains, it'll, okay, I understand that's your belief, but these doctors are challenged to practice based on the science. And I think what they're trying to tell these patients is there aren't studies that show that. Okay. Now, I also know almost every doctor I talk to tries to work with the patient and work down an avenue that works best for them. And they give patients choices. But at the end of the day, the doctor can't force you to take anything you don't want to take. Mm -hmm. But we can't expect them to be on board with prescribing something that they don't believe or that the science doesn't believe it doesn't show will work for you. You can't expect a doctor to do your bidding if they truly believe 
that what you're asking for is wrong or harmful. In his book, when he talks about do no harm, you're asking the doctor then in there with, with the information they have to do harm to you. And that's inappropriate and shouldn't be done. And it's interesting too because you're, you you point that out, but and we've but we've seen that recently. We've had mm-hmm. people file lawsuits for particular yeah. treat. They want the treatments that they wanted for COVID, mm-hmm. and their doctor wouldn't prescribe it. And rather than going to a doctor that would, they decided, well, I'm going to take you to court over it. And um, un- unfortunately, I think at least among a certain sector of the population, that this type of thinking that you are your own expert is is becoming bigger and it's going to become a it's going to become a care problem a quality problem and, and in particular a cost problem yeah it, and it, it is and um and this one uh, this one's a little personal for me because so let me sort of if i can mm-hmm. tell you sort of sure. the story you know my oldest son has autism mm-hmm. okay he was diagnosed with autism a month before his third birthday and like everybody else one of the things we had heard all the clamoring of is it's all the immunizations it's immunizations right okay and he's right in the middle of it. And we then, by then, had our second child, who was at a year and a half, and right in the middle of the whole immunization thing. And we're trying to absorb information, and we're trying to get a sense of it. And we sat down and talked to our pediatrician about it, about our concerns. And he was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And he started saying, look, you have to remember, folks, because he's a, he, at the time he's an older gentleman. He said, I remember rounding in the hospital where there were pediatric diseases taking patients that the people that train today will never see. You know, immunizations are good. And then he talked to us about, look, my kids got immunized. I wouldn't have done it if I didn't agree with it. Mm-hmm. My grandkids are being immunized. I wouldn't do it if I didn't agree with it. There aren't any studies out there, and I'll quote them all, that show that immunizations have anything to do with autism. And he said, but here's what I'm willing to do to meet you halfway. If you want to lengthen out the immunization schedule and not give so many at once, I'm happy to work with you on that on a different schedule. So long as your children are fully immunized by X age, I'll work with you. I'll try to do that. He goes, I don't, I personally said, I don't think there's any clinical reason to do that, but if it helps you sleep at night, I'm happy to meet you halfway there. Right. But if you're going to be in this office and tell me you're not going to immunize these children, you're going to have to find a different physician just because I, I can't do that. And I'll try to help you find a different doctor. Now to me, that was wonderfully done. And doctors do that all the time. He wanted to, help us be more comfortable because we were the advocates for our child but he wasn't going to cross the line into what he thought was harmful and wasn't going to be part of it and it would be inappropriate for me to ask him to so that, that that's why this one mm-hmm. you know in that one size fits all I'm like no it's not one size fits all they'll work with you on things they'll try to explain it but they're not going to do things that they believe are bad right or aren't supported and that particular line about immunizations and autism, I, I, I'm surprised I still hear it, but I do still hear it from mm-hmm. time to time. And it's the same. And what you just pointed out about what he said about having his kids and his grandkids immunized was the same thing that uh, I've pointed out in other settings with regard to COVID vaccines. If 95% of doctors as of June of last year had a COVID vaccine, they really can't think that it's all that bad. That if, and, if you're willing most, to do that and you're willing to get your family to do that, then that's right. saying something. Right. And most of the other 5%, a good chunk of the other 5% were pregnant. And at the time, the vaccine hadn't been studied on pregnancy yet. Exactly. Right. So one size fits all approach is not a good way to describe uh, what he thinks is, is regular medicine, it seems. The, the next point he has is how does your doctor approach mental health issues? And he says, in the wake of the pandemic, we now face a mental health epidemic. Does your doctor address depression and anxiety by quickly writing an SSRI or benzodiazepine prescription or, and wishing you good luck? 
Mental health issues are never solved by pills alone, and a good doctor will realize that a holistic approach, which may or may not require medication, is the way to tackle mental health problems. What do you think about this? Yeah, so the vast majority of the physicians that I have talked to about this issue, because it's difficult, you know, and the doctors will quickly say, look, I, you know, Ron, I, I, you know, I'm really good at the cardiovascular system and I'm really good at this and that's what I trained for. And I didn't train in mental health. Right. You know, it's like asking your internist to be your orthopedic surgeon. That's not my area of specialty. And we live in a society where mental health problems carry a fair amount of stigmas. So almost every physician I know when they, when they see the, the signs and symptoms of depression or things like that, we'll try to refer the patient on. You should get some help, et cetera. Now, we know that that doesn't happen a lot because mm-hmm. patients don't want to do that. And a lot of physicians who prescribe things like antidepressants, et cetera, do so not just because they think it's a, you know, here, take a pill, get out of my office, but it might be an interim thing that helps, and maybe it doesn't get you all the way there, but it's better than nothing, right. and they can't make you go see the right professional. Now, a holistic approach, well, I don't know what they mean by holistic. I think it would have been a better way to say, you know, would it be better approached by seeing a mental health professional, somebody who that is their specialty? Um, and so I think it's really inappropriate to lay this crap on doctors who that would be practicing outside their specialty because mm-hmm. all of the ones that I know that are good do try to make that recommendation. We'll help you find somebody. We'll tell you to do it. Um, just like they, them saying, hey, if that knee really is that sore, you should go see an orthopod. They can't make you do it. And they certainly right. aren't going to practice especially that they're not trained in. Right. And and one thing that's interesting, and I don't know how many other states do this, but I do know here in the state of Michigan, they do have a law that if you go to your, your primary care physician for a checkup, they are required to give you a mental health evaluation form where you basically, you know, it's got, it's a basic questionnaire. You fill it out, you hand it back in. And based off how you look on that, it, it gives them a clue of whether or not they think that you should be referred to someone else. And in that sense, I think that might be a, a, a sense of good regulation in it that for doctors that aren't necessarily trained on how to spot and see those sorts of things, it's a easy way of saying, oh, they've answered these things. It's possible that they need to go see someone else. And, and almost every EMR that I know of in primary care has those questions built mm-hmm. into it right. in the intake, you know, to try to find out what's going on. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I think that's an incredibly unfair accusation. His last point, uh, or his last question rather is, is let's, is let's wait and see an option. And he says, if you have only time for one question, this is it. The financial incentives of our failing healthcare system will always push some sort of action, be it pills, a surgery, a procedure, or a hospital admission. The wait-and-see approach doesn't seem to make money anymore, but it's often the wisest option for the patient. This philosophy also aligns with Hippocrates' original principle of first, do no harm. Do you think wait-and-see is the wisest option most of the time? Well, I think it clearly depends on the situation. Right. You know, I mean... If I'm going to my physician for um, newly onset, very severe headaches with visual field problems and balance issues, then absolutely not wait and see isn't an option because those are things that would lead my doctor to believe that there's something going on. It could be a tumor. You know, the, the, right. the best option there is how quickly can we get you an MRI? Now, for a lot of things, wait and see is a good option, but it really depends on the individual patient. And I don't know any doctor who doesn't pursue that if they think that's the right thing. Um, this idea that it, they will always push for some action, 
to me is if it's the right action or the helpful action. And, and the other thing that this sort of fails to understand is, and the doctors will complain about how often patient gets angry with them if they come into a, a visit and don't leave with a prescription. Right. You know, what'd you do for me today? Well, you know, I, I think this is fine. We're going to check you're gonna, we're going to check your blood pressure again in three months because it's borderline right now. What do you mean? I don't get it. I don't get a pill. Right. So this idea of, you know, the over medication of America is more, you know, is I think more on the idea of the receiver than the provider. Yeah. I, I think I, my, I, my father had the same. I remember before mm-hmm. he passed away, him vehemently claiming that his doctor got paid a kickback every time he went to the drugstore and filled a prescription. And I said, Dad, I've been in the industry for 35 years. That does not happen. It's illegal. It doesn't happen. Oh, I know he does. Every time I go to Walmart and fill a prescription, he gets a couple of bucks, doesn't he? No, Dad, he doesn't. Right. You know, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, it takes him longer to click that box on the EMR that he's writing that prescription, and right. he doesn't get paid any for that either. So Right. And, and I was going to say, I, I think I tend to agree, and I've even noticed that it seems like um, it, for the past couple of doctor's appointments I've gone to, for uh, at least in the GI world, have been quick to ask uh, for, you know, whether or not I, you know, either needed a refill, wanted a refill, or wanted a prescription before I left for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was interesting that I would be asked whether or not I thought I would want something like that. I mean, asking if you need a refill is, is, a, right. is a different question, but asking, hey, do you need a drug for this? Is, to me, felt right. a little weird, but I wonder if that if it isn't exactly what you're saying, that well, since so many people ask, it's become a standard question for the doctors to pose to the patient. Yeah, and, and that really was born out of, this was years ago, when the pharma industry started to direct to consumer advertising. Right. You know, you think back not too long ago, you didn't see ads on TV for the purple pill or, I mean, or these various drugs. Um, and they did that because they knew the consumer would go and say, I want this. You know, I saw the ad. It looks great. You know, the people were riding horseback. I want to ride horseback. You know, well, uh, how does that pill allow you to do that? Well, um, so I think it's it's a reflection of that. And, and again, I you know, this oversimplification and these accusations that aren't based on anything also haven't been my personal experience. I mean, mm-hmm. um, my doctor is taking me off one of my medications because I've lost a bunch of weight. And he's like, we don't right. need this anymore. Let's, let's take it off. It's a stable medication. It doesn't have any downside risk for long-term use, et cetera. But he's like, Hey, if you're able to do it with diet exercise, we can pull right. you off this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, I, I was laughing because the last time I went to him, he said, uh, you know, do you want a prostate exam? And I was like, do I want one? No. Do I need one? And he's like, you know, with what you're doing and your schedule with your colonoscopy and no family history, there's no clinical reason for me to do it. He goes, right. now, if it will make you feel better, I will, but it's your, you know, your call. And I'm like, no, it's easy one. I, but that's what mm-hmm. he presented it to me was, Hey, you know, it doesn't hurt to do it. And if you, if you'll give you peace of mind, I'll do it. It doesn't do it hard. But he's like, there isn't any clinical reason for me to do it based on these other factors for you. Now, the next guy that went in there, maybe had a different family history. Maybe mm-hmm. wasn't following up on his colonoscopies. Yeah, then it was the right thing to do. It's not that the doctor is pushing an extra procedure. He's saying for each patient, this is what he does, whatever's right. Well, and you know, this is a really good um, conversation in, in order to really advocate for primary care physicians and to have a primary care doctor who would be familiar with your medical history and in perhaps some cases, your family history, as opposed to uh, some of the telehealth services that we have now. And I mean, 
sometimes they're, they're helpful in, in, you know, in certain urgent care settings, but, you know, having someone that you can go to that knows you well enough to be able mm-hmm. to make an informed decision about you and what, and actually, you know, that, for example, I go to a, a, a Catholic health clinic in Ann Arbor and they're very, they are very proud about the fact that all of their doctors are active members in their local churches. So you can see your doctor in your church and see that they are one, that their values align with you, that you can see that they are uh, there with you and that they're part of the community and that they can get to know you outside of that particular setting. And I think there's a lot of benefit to something like that, where they can make an informed decision about you as opposed to being just someone on the other side of a screen or a phone call. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I had one doctor who sort of jokingly said, you know, many of my female patients have a closer relationship with their hairdresser than they do with me. And it struck me as, wow, yeah. he's probably right. right. You know I mean? And how sad is that? That, you know, um, this is the, the person that is, you know, you're sort of trusting your, your ongoing health with and um, you should have that kind of relationship with them. And they want it. The doctors right. want to have patients mm-hmm. that have that kind of They don't want to see the one and done's. Well, this this uh, opinion piece uh, was published Monday. It was it's called "Question Your Doctor" by uh, Paracelsus, which again is a, a pseudonym. Uh, he's got a book coming out. Um, well, he she don't really know. They have a book coming out. Oh, I just did the worst thing I hate, which is using a is using a plural pronoun for a singular person. <laughs> he or she has a book coming out. Uh, I think it's supposed to come out tomorrow from a. a publisher that I've never heard of before. And after clicking around on their website, I don't think I'd be interested in many of their books. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'll see if we can get a review copy and uh, maybe talk to him about why he has some of his opinions. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, either way, we'll make sure we have all the articles from today's program in the uh, show notes for the program today, which you will be able to see in the description for any of the platforms you listen to us on, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, any of the others, or you can find them at flatlining.net. Uh, We want to hear your comments and questions that you may have about this program, and you can be sure to comment on this post at flatlining.net or send us an email to flatlining at substack.com. You can also tweet me and Ron, and uh, we can uh, respond to you that way. I'm at Radio Handley, and Ron is at Ron Howergan. Ron, do you have any uh, parting wisdom based off of our conversation today? No, this is a good group of topics to go over. Um, Enjoyed it. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it, too, and I'm, I'm glad we stuck around, and I'm glad we spent some time picking apart um, what unfortunately might be a new trend in, in libertarian medicine. I think that's what yes. we could call it. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, Ron. All right. Thank you. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a great week.